The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion hosted by Michael Guyon. My name is Michael Gaiad, publisher of The Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the air is Adam Cobasi. Uh, I'm excited for this conversation. I've been tracking Adam's work for some time. I know many of you have seen his phenomenal tweets. I think this will be good, uh, a good uh, good conversation here. Uh, Adam, for those who are not familiar with your background, introduce yourself. Who are you? How did you get interested in markets? And what are you trying to do with your research? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thanks for having me on, like these spaces that you guys are doing. Um, so... Yeah, my name's Adam. Um, I started the Kobesi letter back in 2015, so we're going on uh, seven years now. And um, I, you know, I'd been trading stocks for a while before I even started anything that had to do with writing a letter, or being on Twitter. Um, and in the early days, you know, technical analysis was still pretty young. Just about everybody was doing fundamental analysis, and when I, you know, draw, draw lines on a chart, people would actually laugh at me. So I kind of developed this strategy where I use like a mix of fundamental and technical analysis in my uh, weekly letter and still do that till this day. And, you know, we've we've been able to outperform the S&P for the last seven years in a row. And uh, more interestingly, you know, we think that technical analysis really is the future. And the reason we got into it was because of um, the fact that algorithms are now trading more than 50 percent of the daily market volume. And we realized that you know, fundamentals are a little bit more emotional based, or a little bit more subjective, whereas technicals, yeah, you can draw lines differently. But, you know, some technicals are so clear that just about every algorithm and every technical trader in the market is, is, is watching these levels. So if you can get ahead of that move, then, you know, the majority of market volume is now is now moving ahead of your trade or, or after your trade, you can kind of front that. And we've we've seen this, you know, work in the S&P commodities, bonds, just about everything. And even with finance Twitter now, I mean, finance Twitter has, has continued to grow like crazy. We think that actually the amount of technical traders is actually growing just because of Twitter. So we think, uh, you know, the, the, the way we analyze markets is, is becoming more and more common. Uh, we're obviously always evolving. But um, over the last seven years of writing, I mean, we've had a lot of success with our kind of unique approach to, to markets. On the um, technical side, is there anything that would suggest that maybe the effectiveness has gone down over time because as you noted, you know, more and more people are following it, whether it's on FinTwit or through software packages. I mean, it's never been so easy ever in history to just, you know, have an automatic trend line or have different oscillators in, in the click of a mouse uh, button. 
Yeah, that's a good question. I don't, I don't think so because um, honestly, the, the power in technicals is power in the numbers, right? The more people that are following a certain technical level, that's what makes it important. Otherwise, it's just really another level. So if if people are all trading, if more people are trading on, you know, the S and P, it's forty one. Last week we saw that forty one hundred was our target. We've been bullish with S and P for the last uh, three four weeks. We were targeting forty one hundred. The the exact high of the day was like forty one hundred point five. And then we're now down 80, 90 points from there. So, and, and this kind of stuff is happening daily throughout commodities and, and even individual stocks. So we, we actually think, you know, more people following technos on Twitter actually makes it even better. So I shared in the Nest a tweet that you put out a couple of days ago where you basically summed it up by saying nothing adds up, which is the right of the equal sign. But let's go to the left. Uh, S&P falling like a jobs report, cancel the Fed pivot, fix down more than the S&P like we're in a bull market. Crude oil up like inflation's 10%, gold down like inflation's gone, bonds down like we're in a bull market. Nothing adds up. In a confusing environment, what do you tend to give more credence to? Fundamentals, which you can argue are maybe more objective and clear, or technicals where there is a lot of noise? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, I would say te- we lean more technical in markets like this um, because they are a little bit more clear cut. But, you know, this is this is a really interesting time because we're the, the markets are so focused on the Fed and they're so fixated on the Fed that e- each part of the market is kind of trading differently. And then, you know, crude also has a bunch of other factors going on here. Um, but this was more a point that it's it's been an interesting bear market because, number one, the VIX has yet to, to really spike anywhere. I mean, we're we're almost below 20 again. We were last week. The S&P, you know, had had one of its worst starts of the year. It's now in a situation where bad news is good news type of thing because the market really truly is so fixated on the Fed. So honestly, we think, you know, technicals definitely are where we're we're leaning towards more now. But if you're able to, you know, get ahead of what the Fed's going to say, and obviously that's a big task, you are, there is a lot of fundamental um, opportunity here just on the, on the backdrop of the Fed alone. And, and the Fed also, you know, this is something we've been writing too for subscribers. The, the Fed is, that's right now, that's the primary fundamental catalyst. But once the Fed, you know, quote unquote pivots and investors start saying, oh, OK, rates are done going up. Well, we still have a whole nother situation here where we are in a recession. We still have historically high rates. We have, you know, rising credit card debt. Markets are still in volatility. So it's not like right when the Fed pivots or, you know, pivot is not even the right term, slows down and they start raising 50 or 25 basis points at a time. Or even if they stop raising and keep rates where they are. We still have historically high rates into a recession, into you know declining, declining economic activity. So we're not we're not really in the clear yet. Um, but we have you know traded both sides of this so far. So I, I like the way that you frame that. Different parts of the market are reacting differently, or maybe interpreting the Fed in different ways. For a good chunk of the year, as you know, the, there was pretty high agreement around stocks and bonds, in particular Treasuries and stocks on the kind of high inflation narrative. But the dollar didn't really, I'd argue, respond the way that most people would think. I made that joke before, right? The, if, you, if I were to tell you a year ago, the dollar would have been the best inflation hedge, you would have thought I was crazy, but that's pretty much exactly what happens. Let's talk about sort of the sort of the, the evolution of different, of the major asset classes, currencies, stocks, bonds, commodities, in the way that you've seen them interpret Fed policy moves and maybe if anything has changed in the last month across the different asset classes, own interpretations. Yeah, um, that's that's a good point. So the the dollar 
kind of has been driving a lot of the, the different asset classes here. So like gold, for example, was something that everyone talked about. You know, you had historically high inflation. You had market volatility through the roof. It's uncertainty with the whole Russia and Ukraine situation going on. Gold was really unable to, to catch much of a bit at all this year. And, and a lot of this is because of the dollar. And the dollar still is, you know, it has come down off the highs, but it is still it still is pretty strong. We think what, what really happened here was, and especially earlier in this year, there was just every market was following, falling. Every federal central bank was raising rates at a historic pace. And investors just said, what's the least bad market here? And, and money was really just funneling into the dollar for that reason. Even with inflation so high, I mean, this, this has kind of persisted. We've, commodities are really seeing the effect of this. We saw some effect on bonds. And that's exactly why when the dollar pulled back, you saw you know, treasury, yields, treasury yields start to pull back. And they're already now down off the highs. But yeah, I mean, we agree in what you're saying. It's just, it's a very interesting period right now. What do you make of the... Um some of the divergences that I think are starting to take place. I've, I've kept on noting this point that I think for whatever reason, whether it's FTX or something else that coincidentally is happening around FTX, that some of these intermarket correlations look like they're coming back, meaning you're seeing the exception of today, again, back to hell, right? Stocks and treasuries had a few periods where they diverged. You've got, uh, you had a pretty big break in the dollar post Powell's uh, speech. Do you think now there the, the, there's more sort of disagreement among the asset class as far as how the Fed should be uh, interpreted? Yeah, I think in a sense there is. And I also think that markets are just extremely reactive right now. I mean, they'll take a single word that Powell says and run with it and say, oh, Powell said, we want to be a little bit less, you know, restrictive. And then all of a sudden this means the Fed pivoted and bonds are through the roof, stocks are higher. You know, you mentioned FTX, which is interesting because we haven't really seen much of the I guess, the spillover from that situation into equities yet. I mean, I know that has lagged in the past, but we haven't really seen much of an impact from that. Um, And that could also just mean that we're still early and that there there are many other crypto um, exchanges and parts of the crypto universe that are are going to follow uh, what happened with FTX. It's hard to say right now. You know, going back to your point about the Fed and, and divergence, I think the other interesting thing here is people are a little bit confused on risk profiles right now. I mean, the bond markets and some days are trading like the S&Ps at 5,000. Some other days it's trading like we're down 50% this year. And there's never really anything in between. I mean, we saw the 10-year note yield swing like 30 basis points on Friday last week, I think, after that, that jobs report. So I think markets are just so fixated on what the Fed is going to do. And that's kind of causing these huge intraday swings that you mentioned. There's a part of me that feels like the Fed wants to really, really, really invert the curve uh, more than we've already seen. And I say that because it's, you know, there's a mechanism there, right, in terms of incentivizing banks to lend. I mean, the more inverted it is, the less credit flow you're going to have. That's, again, typically sort of a sign of recession. It's also, you can argue, a a cause of it. How do you think about the the signal of the yield curve here? And because I think this is also where there's a nuance. Everyone talks about the Fed controlling rates. I keep going back to they don't really fully control the long end, but they can drive a big inversion purely from the short end, independent of what the long end you know, might be doing. Yeah. I mean, the Fed realized that, number one, the only way that we're going to get inflation down is if we have a recession. And they, 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 they actually said that a few times over the last year. 
And now, you know, that's why we're seeing the yield curve inverted. We actually, I mean, we've been saying that we're in a recession ever since we had two straight quarters of negative GDP. And everything kind of still points to that. I mean, you can call it whatever you want, but we're we're in a slowing economy. And there are a lot of headwinds going on here. Um, but the, the yield curve inversion is, I, I, I don't even think the Fed is really that concerned. They they think, all right, well, we're, we haven't had a recession in, you know, one of the longest periods in history without a recession. So if, if raising rates aggressively means that we're not, we're going to avoid inflation being entrenched in the economy, which was another big theme in their last, um, their last meeting, then they don't really care if it's inverted because they already said they don't care if we have a recession. That's how we're going to lower inflation. Um, the question is, you know, are they going to overshoot now because they're so hawkish and they're so fixated on getting rates down now? You know, there, there's a there's a possibility, like we saw after the financial crisis, that you could have a, um, a period of, of deflation before we get back to that 2% inflation steady state they want. So, the, I mean, the yield curve inversion is definitely a hot topic, and it, it always generates headlines. But, you know, we don't think the Fed is too concerned about that, especially because over the long term, that always normalizes. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the lead lag report. And now, back to our discussion. Do you get the sense that maybe the Fed has overshot? And I say that only because, yeah, you know, I've always had a problem with the narrative that the Fed has to hike rates to a level above inflation. The problem is inflation is lagging. And it takes time, right, for rates to filter through to the economy. Um, it's my belief, I could be obviously totally wrong, that a year from now, it might be very clear that they overshot. But I'm curious to hear your your thoughts in terms of where that sweet spot is and where they may have or either going to cross or may have already crossed it. Yeah, uh, that's obviously the million dollar question. Um, it's it's hard to say because they are, you know, you're, in a way you're using data that lags to, to determine if inflation has peaked or not. If, you know, if they raise, we expect them to raise 50 basis points this month um, and maybe 25 in January, depending on what happens with the November CPI. I think we're getting near that point. Um, and the Fed really needs to take a more cautious but hawkish outlook. That's what we're, what we're calling for. If the Fed, you know, continues to raise aggressively and, and the December or the, the, the CPI that's coming out in December for November, this is a huge this is a huge report. If, if this comes in higher than 7.7 .7 or even like above eight, then this really increases the risk that the Fed's the Fed overshoots and, and tightens too too much. So next next week is probably the biggest week of the year. I mean, you have CPI, you have the Fed, and everyone's waiting on the pivot. And we've been calling for, you know, a buy the rumor, sell the news type of event. Um, we were on Fox Business last week and kind of echoed the same thing. But I'll, for those that didn't tune in, I'll reiterate: we've been bullish for the last month or so of equities and. Every single Fed meeting this year, even last year, we've seen the decision priced in well ahead of what happens. And really what ends up happening is the opposite price action of what occurred for the last month or two is happens after the meeting, barring any crazy statement from Powell in the in the press conference. So we um, you know, we've been bullish and we think that 
the Fed's going to come out. They're going to raise 50 basis points, but they're going to stick with this theme. And even Powell said it last week when, when everyone said he, he pivoted. He said it then, too, that they, they, want, they want to start you know, considering less hawkish policy. They're still hawkish. But they, they also want to make sure that you know, rates are sufficiently high to bring inflation down and, risk, and, and lower risk of inflation entrenchment. So this is kind of creating this perfect, you know, buy the rumor, sell the news type of environment that that we think is going to come to fruition next week. I have not tracked this that closely. I see the headlines um, and I see a lot of people saying that this is one of those situations where if there's smoke, there's fire. This the situation with Blackstone limiting withdrawals. I don't know how much work you've done on this, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts on if you think that's maybe a one off or that's if that's sort of the. uh, maybe the first real sign that they've maybe overdone it. Yeah. Um, you know, I haven't done too much work with that. I saw, are you talking about their property fund where they limited? The yeah, withdrawals? Exactly. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, there's, this is, I think this is the first sign of institutional capital just beginning to show a little bit of panic, especially in the, in, in the real estate world where prices are finally starting to come down. Rates are soaring. I you know, we don't think that this is a 2008-style housing market where everything's going to come crashing down. There, you will see institutional capital start to pull back, but that's just natural. I mean, that's happened. It happens in private equity. It happens all across finance. Um, and this is the first sign of that institutional capital pulling back. And we we think that the housing market is actually kind of lagging a little bit here. So we, we think that in the first couple quarters, uh, Q1, Q2 of 23, is when we're going to start to see the real decline in, in markets in the housing markets, but nothing really beyond uh, you know a standard bear market. I guess you could say maybe a twenty or thirty percent pullback in prices, uh, and, th- and this is on prices that are already up at a historic you know historic pace over the last few years. So we're not too concerned about that right now. You know, if you start to see funds all across Wall Street starting you know having these this investor rush saying, "Oh, we want our money back," that's another thing. Uh, but not not really something we're watching too closely right now. Yeah, I'd agree with you. I mean, the the challenge there is, you know, is that you know, if it ever got to got to that point, then I'll, presumably markets would have already dropped a lot, you know, as that's happening or just prior to that happening, kind of sensing or or sniffing it out. That's kind of the the challenge always with these type of environments, right? You don't know yeah. if it it becomes a domino, but by the time you it looks like the dominoes are falling, you've already probably taken a big hit. Right, right. That's a good point. I mean, it's. It's always it's always easy in retrospect. Basically, is what you're saying. Um, there's a fine line between being ahead of ahead of something like that and also just panicking and missing out on you know opportunity because you took all your money out or you sidelined yourself too quickly. I think the best way to approach this market, honestly, right now is if you're trading, trade with stops, right? I mean, it's it's very and, and that's why technicals are so beautiful. It's very easy to tell when the trend breaks. I mean, you might cost yourself fifty points. In the S and P, but if if you're making higher highs and higher lows, and and that's what we've been, we've been watching, like last week, for example, we made another higher low um, in the S and P at forty eighty, and then another higher high at forty one hundred. In that sort of environment, we just continue to play the trend. I mean, the trend has truly been your friend in this market. Um, so instead of panicking at headlines and, and looking at these fundamental things that are you know obviously very hard to forecast, we're more for- focused on where is the current trend. Even if we're in a bear market rally, there's there's a lot of opportunity to both sides in this market. So there's there's you know there's a question of where's the current trend, and then where's the where is the highest conviction by the crowd? I tend to be contrarian in the way that I 
look at things and I use a lot of fint with sentiment as I yeah. am very allowed to write and to kind of use as a, as a way of validating maybe a counter opinion. And I, I say opinion purposely because everything's an opinion when it comes to the future. Nobody knows, you know, except for hindsight. I, I'm curious just from your own sense of things, maybe from some subscribers or people you've talked to, where is the conviction highest that maybe makes you a little bit worried? I think if you asked me this question a month ago, just about everybody was was bearish, and there's there's strong conviction that there's no buying opportunity in sight. I mean, this rally is extremely similar to what we saw in June through August of this summer, and, and I think even on a percentage basis, it's pretty similar. Uh, where everybody now is like, everybody now wants the Fed pivot, and it's now the bullish train to the moon type of thing uh, on Twitter. So that that's when we start to get concerned. Um, I think that's also kind of supports our thesis of buy the rumor, sell the news. I, I mean, whether that means the S&P is going to crash all the way back down to 3,500 or 3,000 that people are calling, it's it's still very early to determine that. And it's, it's going to be highly dependent on the Fed and technicals, but the Fed's probably going to break technical levels to both directions. So for now, you know, we're we're not... The sentiment on Twitter is is bullish. I don't think it's overly bullish yet, but it is certainly setting up for um, a pullback at some point, um, especially when this near-term uptrend breaks. And, and that's the point when you can say, was this a bear market rally or is the bottom in? Um, it's Regardless if it's a bear market rally or the bottom is in, we don't think it's going to be a clear coast higher in S&P to 5,000 type of thing. Uh, even beyond the Fed, and pivoting, like I said earlier, there's a lot of other headwinds in this market right now. But I also do think, Adam, it's, it's, there's a another aspect to this, right? When you think about um, technicals and tail risks coming from a macro perspective, are there certain charts that you pay more attention to as an early tell? Lumber to gold, utilities, moving averages has some degree of predictive power there. But do you like to focus on certain areas for sort of earlier warning signs than others? I think the, you know, we, we've been talking about the dollar. That's definitely been... The dollar and bond markets are actually pretty pretty well in sync here. So we've been seeing the the move in you know the dollar. Once the dollar started to pull back, and if, if the dollar index, for example, drops below 100, that's a great sign for bulls because that's opening the path for more downside in Treasury yields, more upside in bonds, and the S and P is going to follow. If 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 the 10 year note yield drops to three percent, we'll see the S and P 500 much higher than it is now. I, it's hard to say what's moving first right now. Um, I think everything's kind of moving together, and at some points, nothing really makes sense. At some points, everything makes sense. Um, but we're, we take more of a holistic approach and kind of watch everything, I guess. Is, is there any um, particular asset class or, or trade that's gotten choppier as the year has progressed? I mean, I'm going to assume oil is you know, part of that, but I'm just kind of curious. I, I don't, I don't, you know, I, I, my approach is much more condition oriented rather than level oriented. But is there anything that's been more difficult throughout the year? Yeah, um, we one of our assets that we cover and we've talked about a little is gold. Um, and gold has been just like if you're a fundamental trader trading gold, like this market makes absolutely no sense. Gold should have been at three thousand based on you know inflation and volatility and whatnot. But obviously the dollar has limited things here, so that's been a really interesting trade. And and now we see gold back around eighteen hundred, and it's like. You're, you know you're either staring off a cliff or the Fed pivot is coming and then you can breathe a sigh of relief. But it's been very choppy for the last few months, and we think that's going to that's continue. Just the, the fundamentals are so mixed here that it's hard to, to see a sustained rally in gold. 
And then at any time that, it, that the downtrend starts to pick up momentum, this Fed pivot narrative comes back into play. And this leaves the chart just in basically in range bound for the last few months. So that's been a, a real choppy trade that we expect to continue. Uh, for the life of me, I can't, I, I, again, I keep going back to, I can't understand the obsession everybody seemingly has with a Fed pivot when all of history suggests that that's actually not a good thing. Now, I know that obviously, yeah. you know, it's probabilities, right? So maybe it will be a good thing this time around, but it, it is amazing to me how people latch onto a one-liner and don't even do any kind of test to see if it's true. Right. No, yeah, that's true. I mean, this is this this could be something really that, you know, Twitter is amplified, honestly. It's there's so many there's so much capital in this market that's just following headlines and whatever the newest headline is is what's driving price. So now it's like this the the pivot, the Fed pivot, quote unquote Fed pivot has become the 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 key event that everybody needs to end this misery, right? And once the Fed pivots, it's all the, the grass is greener, which is definitely not the correct narrative. It might cause a near-term rally. It might it might mean that rates are not going higher, but it doesn't mean that we're we're in the clear and we're running and there's not other headwinds in just about every other part of this market. So we, we I mean that's something that we've been very cautious about too. Even calling a Fed pivot is really misleading. I mean, if the Fed raises 50 basis points right now with rates already historically high, I mean that's not even that's still very hawkish. If you would have gone back five years to announce that oh the Fed's raising 50 basis points. The market would have been down hundreds of points because, oh, we wanted a 25 basis point rate hike or we wanted rates flat. So it's all relative. And you got to be in market conditions like this. You got to be careful to run with a narrative and just believe that once that happens, everything is good to go. Or in, in the opposite direction, once something happens, oh, we're going to crash. Like the, These conditional statements that are just based on one condition, generally those are misleading and not the best way to, to handle markets. Okay, so so that goes actually a little bit to the name of the space, which I, I named it purposely. The Fed knows something that we don't. Now, I I am of the again opinion that it's funny because a lot of people seemingly have different different viewpoints on this. Actually, dear point, I'd like to hear your thoughts on this too. John Molden uh, retweeted, and I'm a big fan of John's work, basically saying that he doesn't think that Powell's tone was a change at all. That Powell didn't say anything differently. That they're still on the Fed hiking warpath, you know, cycle, but. A lot of other people will say, well, no, actually, quite the contrary. It looks like he's kind of toned down his um, his aggressiveness. First of all, what's your take, uh, Adam, on last Friday's Powell you know, conversation? And um, is there – this is the thing that bothers me. It's just there's a part of me that, that feels like Powell is hedging just in case there is some kind of tail event out there because of this crypto collapse. Yeah, absolutely. I mean – this is what we've been, we've been writing for subscribers all year. The Fed has really been hedging the entire year. They, in a way, the Fed. If if you compile every statement that the Fed has said, I mean, we made a tweet about this on November thirtieth, where we said, you know, in November of last year, they said inflation is transitory. Then they said it's not transitory in March, and then they said you need a recession in June. Now they say you might have a path to a soft landing when we've already crashed. So the Fed has been hedging themselves throughout the entire entire course of this bear market. And and they know that if the December CPI or the November CPI report and next week comes out and, and you know, at 8% or above 7.7, well, now they're back in the same exact spot they were at when we had this bear market rally uh, in the summer. And they can't say that we've pivoted or, 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 you know, that keyword the market is looking for, because if they say that, and then now inflation actually didn't peak or, or it's still at a historically high level for longer than they wanted, then they got to go all the way back to their their hawkish mode again. So 
they are for sure uh, hedging to both directions. And, and that goes in the other way, whereas if inflation keeps falling hard, then they're even, you know, we've seen Fed fund features showing um, the possibility of, of rates being cut in 2023. So they know that really anything in the entire spectrum can come to fruition here. And they're, they're hedging to both directions because if they, if they don't, you know, if they don't keep rates high enough for long enough, then inflation is going to become entrenched in wages. And this was something they talked about a lot last month. Whereas if it comes down quicker than they expected, then you're, they're risk, risking overshooting. So absolutely think the head is fudging or the fed is hedging and they're they're going to continue to do that at this month's uh, meeting i mean yeah on the on the consumer side you know the, there definitely are some cracks that we're seeing um where you know what's been interesting and something that i think markets have kind of overlooked which is looking at retail earnings um last last quarter we saw target and walmart start to really note the impact of inflation on on consumer spending and this quarter, they kind of reiterated that, but markets kind of completely ignored it because, oh, the Fed's going to pivot. So the the consumer consumers are definitely starting to, to, to crack a little bit here. Um, and also something we've been commenting on is just rising credit card debt levels. Um, consumer sentiment is still historically low. It's 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 interesting, right? Because you're the Fed's almost behaving like we're in a in a bull market with with raising rates so aggressively, and 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 it's so counterintuitive when you think about it. But um, the you know consumers on the other hand are starting to feel the pain, and it's 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 going to create an, an interesting 2023 for sure. Well, it's also important. I did catch some of what Powell was saying Friday. He said he he alluded to something I've said a number of times. It's like you got to be careful with any sort of analysis where the sample size is one. He actually said that where n equals one, right? That's right. what he referenced at some point, right? So this is the other thing too. It's like the market assumes that the Fed has 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 perfect control and power over m- macro dynamics but even the Powell, even Powell himself is admitting that they don't really have any map to to go with on this a- absolutely and and this is something else that we've been talking about a lot for for uh, you know in our newsletter the fed really only can control demand side inflation and that's what's been such a struggle here supply side inflation has been just as bad if not worse than the demand side and the fed has basically no control over that what what's happening is, and this is another reason why we thought a case for deflation and even over tightening is possible. They're almost at the mercy of supply side factors, and they don't know when these factors are going to come down, when supply side inflation is going to ease. And what that means is, if it eases too quickly and they're too hawkish, well, then that's the case for over tightening, and and that we, you might even see deflation. So, you know, the, n equals one. That's a great point that you mentioned, and. On the other side, they only control half the picture here. The Fed is absolutely not the only person in control, the only or the only entity to blame here, if there even isn't one to blame. But it's not just the Fed driving the show, uh, even though it might seem that way. It is interesting, right? So, so this is, and I think Adam, this is kind of um, it's an interesting thought experiment, right? Higher rates will, will only really, you can argue, create a severe crisis when you have a bulleted rollover of debt, right? I mean, that's you can argue that's part of the reason why high yield has done much better than people realize uh, or th- would have thought, including myself, because, you know, a lot of the, the high yield issuance issuers locked in low rates and, you know, it'll take time for that debt to eventually roll over. And the question is, at what point in the in the interest rate level will they roll over? How do you how do you think about credits more, maybe more broadly, Adam? I know you talk about technicals and fundamentals, but 
you know, technicals in the bond market, there's still merit there if you're thinking about it from the standpoint of spread widening and, again, the risk of rollover, with whether it's BIS or or uh, junk companies. That's sort of a, a constant risk that could be interesting from a timing perspective. Yeah, I mean, no, I mean, the first thing I'll, I'll add is um, we're we're always cautious of these like these reports that come out and, and and not saying they don't have merit and they don't have a point, but they they I mean some of these are just a little bit they they invoke fear mongering I feel like and you got to be a little bit careful where it's not like like you were saying Michael, it's not a linear it's not always a linear thing where oh we have high rates and we have this historically high debt level and now everything's going to collapse um, and I think that's something that people are a little bit cautious about just because we were coming off the financial crisis when you know we had one of the worst collapses of of debt ever but you know it, it's hard to say right now it's also hard to say how high rates or how long states will rates will remain this high um and because if inflation really starts coming down quickly um we see a path for rates to come down re- relatively quickly i mean we could start seeing rate cuts in, in the second quarter of 2023. And if you look at Fed Fudge futures, they're actually forecasting rate cuts in the second half. So, you know, to say that, you know, we, rates are so high right now. Yeah. Does this mean that we're on the brink of a collapse and, and every, and you know, every country is going to have a, a severe crisis? I mean, we, we think it's, that's a little bit early to say, and, it's it's definitely something good to keep in mind, but not something that we're too worried about right now. Yeah, I I, I tell you, it's, it's it'll be interesting to see how that that plays out if the Fed hikes rates while headline CPI is still solidly above two percent, which they'd have to do, right? Because again, inflation's lagging, but most of the public doesn't realize that. So the 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 moment the Fed does end up cutting rates with inflation headlines still being elevated. There's going to be a lot of pressure and political backlash, which is misguided, but might also impact their trigger happiness to do that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's the Fed. The Fed is trying to, you know, they they always come back to their statement where we're we're acting on our mandate, right? And they're not politically driven or not really considering what equity markets think. So, you know, it's important that the Fed continues to just stay in their in their. Uh, in their realm and and not be too driven by outside factors because um right now is is kind of crucial i think they're they they're still thinking in the term of terms of maximizing short-term pain to to minimize long-term damage um so for now it's tough i mean i don't think the fed should be politically driven um and and we don't really comment on politics much to be honest but the the fed has really you know just been data-driven so far um and and Hopefully that remains the case. Uh, for the remaining few minutes here, Adam, any any sort of final thoughts or things that are really kind of getting your attention more recently that you're maybe highlighting in your research? Yeah, I mean, we've been watching. Um, the markets have become very global, right? It's not, and this was something that we've that we that was highlighted in the the whole situation with Russia and Ukraine. You can't have parts of this market siloed off. I mean, the the, the global economy is so interconnected, so. It's, uh, you know, you've seen like the, the COVID restrictions in China, for example, have been a big headwind um, that, that kind of caused some volatility over the last couple of weeks. And in crude oil, you know, same type of thing, and also pressuring consumers. So, uh, you know, what we've been, our overall, overlying theme here is the Fed's in, in focus right now. Markets are, you know, are very interconnected. So everyone's kind of reacting to what the Fed's doing. Um, but once they do pivot or slow down, which we do expect to happen at this month's meeting, 
you know, it doesn't mean that we're all all of a sudden in the clear. It doesn't mean that S&P is going up 20%. And honestly, we think that there's a lot more opportunity coming. And, and markets in general, you know, markets are a very interesting spot where people in life in general, people hate uncertainty. They hate change. They hate volatility. But in markets, this is really the, the biggest opportunity. I mean, these these volatile market conditions only come every few years. And if they do, when they do, they're brief. So view view change, view uncertainty as opportunity. Don't don't have an aversion to it, which is a natural human instinct. Um, and we think that, you know, even though we've fallen 20, 30 percent at the lows this year, there's still more opportunity to both sides in, in this market. So remain objective and, and don't trade with emotion. I think that's a, that's a good place to end the space. Thank you everybody for joining. I'll have this as a podcast uh, in a couple of days here. I'm doing another uh, live space at uh, in about an hour, actually. Noon Eastern with Peter uh, Spino who's in the space here. Uh, thank you, everybody. Thank you, Adam. Really do uh, enjoy talking to you and listening to you. And everybody enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. If, ever, if sure. anyone has any questions, feel free to tweet at us or email us, and we're happy to follow up. Very good. Thank you, everybody. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at LeadLag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the LeadLag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.